Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. This month in association with Rehab My Patient, and this is session 96. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. My name is Jack March and delighted to intro you this month to the podcast. A couple of reasons that I'm delighted. One, um, it's actually off the back of a logistical error that I made, which was rather unfortunate. Our guest today, Christina Previtt, was supposed to be talking on therapy live sport, but I was juggling so many speakers that essentially I forgot she existed, which is terribly embarrassing. But luckily for me, she agreed to speak to Jack on the podcast. So really delighted to get her content talking about weightlifting and pregnancy. Cover absolutely loads of ground in this podcast and it's useful for pretty much everybody really, whether you work in a pelvic health sphere or in a gym or in general physiotherapy and you're going to meet potential pregnant ladies who might ask for advice or even if you're a pregnant person yourself. So um, before we just quickly get into that, I just want to nod to our sponsors for this month's episode, which is RehabMyPatient.com. And we really, we were lucky enough, really, we were at Therapy Live. No, we weren't. We were at Therapy Expo. Slip of the tongue. Um, Therapy Expo last week, as I'm recording this, uh, it'll be about 15 days before this comes out, I think. Um, and we saw Rehab My Patient and Tim Allardyce at their stand, Had a gr- managed to have a great play around with their new modules that they are launching. They've got a um, older person's module with exercises specifically for older people, but also a module with Joe Gibson, the wonderful Joe Gibson, all about the shoulder. So you can provide really specific exercises, um, which Joe would provide, which of course we all want to emulate um, her wonderful style and abilities. So head to rehabmypatient.com forward slash physiomatters and you'll get three months free there, um, including their exercise prescription software and the um, virtual consultation um, software as well, which is really excellent. I've been using that a good chunk recently and very, very happy with it. So um, the final thing for me, I've mentioned Therapy Live Sport and uh, my logistical error with our guest today, Christina. If you did miss out on Therapy Live Sport and you want to watch it again, you can, of course, become a premium member of physio-matters.com and that gets you access to every single Therapy Live recording and some other stuff as well. And going into next year is going to be Well, you're going to want to be a member, let's put it that way. So you can get the recordings for each individual show, or you can, of course, as I mentioned, be a premium member, which is an absolute bargain, um, £140 for the year. And um, you get somewhere around 350 or 400 hours of CPD from top class um, professionals. So um, all you need to do is head to therapy-live.co.uk, and there's a big red button in the top right side that says buy recordings and you can get access there to whatever it is that you wish. So enough from me, I'll see you at the other side and I hope you enjoy the recording. So I'm delighted to be here today with Christina Previtt and Christina is unfortunately was going to be a guest on, on the Therapy Live show recently. And Jim made a mistake with some of the logistics. And so we're, we're, we're both furious at him for that. But what it has meant 
is that I now get a chance to spend an hour with Christina talking about weightlifting and pregnancy and some of the myths and misconceptions that exist around getting people going again and back under a bar. And I'm so, you know, weirdly, I'm pleased that he made that mistake because now I get a chance to have that chat with Christina one-to-one. Christina, could you introduce yourself to the listeners first and foremost and how you got into such the specialism that you're in? Yeah. So hello, everyone. My name is Christina Previtt. I am a, a physical therapist originally from Ontario in Canada, currently living in Concord, North Carolina. Uh, I have been practicing for about 10 years and I have kind of two main focuses. I focus in geriatrics and I focus in exercise and pregnancy, which seem like they're really different, but they're actually really the same in that these are the two populations that we tend to underdose as physical therapists. Right. And we're going to talk about that. Um, so I owned a gym up in Canada called Stave Off, where we did uh, postnatal return to exercise classes. Um, I'm doing my PhD part-time right now. And I did a scoping review that looked at where there is evidence for physical therapists to be involved in health and wellness. And the two areas that had the strongest literature to support them was in the pre-postnatal space and in the geriatric space. So we started a program called Strong Like Mom about five years ago that focused on returning with the help of a physical therapist, uh, females into um, getting back into CrossFit style work. So high intensity interval training, um, getting under a bar again. And the more and more moms that I saw, the more and more questions that people would have for me around you know, bracing and breathing and load lifted and all these types of things during pregnancy and into that postpartum period. And then I got pregnant. (laughs) So when I got pregnant, I was posting about lifting. I was, I competed in nationals for weightlifting prior to getting pregnant with my daughter, my first child. And so I obviously wanted to continue lifting and I would get comments online, like, you're going to prolapse your bladder. What are you doing? Or the worst ones were like, when your baby dies, like, don't come crying to me, like those types of comments online. And it was awful. And it was awful. And I came from a very educated space. And so from that kind of grew, I now teach two courses um, called clinical management of the fitness athlete, pregnancy and postpartum that allows clinicians to learn more about how, when, if, to modify exercise during pregnancy, and then how to get these female athletes back to the sport that they love. Um, and then we do a live course as well that focuses on some of the internal work that pelvic floor physical therapists do so that we get them off of just doing supine exercise and get people, you know, hanging from rigs and, and doing all this stuff underneath a barbell. Um, and then the other piece of my work puzzle is that I am one of the co-creators of the Barbell Mamas. So now I do online exercise programming for the pregnant and postpartum athlete that has filters for different pelvic floor considerations that allows females to follow through so that they have some guidance on return to exercise or continuation with exercise during pregnancy and postpartum. So we have filters around prolapse, pelvic girdle pain, first trimester, late trimesters, um, incontinence, all these types of things so that uh, there's a little bit more guidance to help with that. So that's kind of a little bit about me. And I'm a mom of two. Super. And now mom of two. And how old are your, your kids now? So my son is three months old today. So I'm getting back into it again. Um, and my daughter is two and a half. So I've gone through this like lifting during pregnancy and, and postpartum twice myself. So um, it's been an interesting journey. 
practicing what we what we preach is is interesting. I think some some of the people I most respect in this in this space, namely Emma Brockwell, Granny Donnelly, who have done a lot of work with recently, and but also Elaine Miller here in the UK. Often their their expertise can be independent of their motherhood, but also their lived experience in that space has only enhanced their passion as well as then as educators. I think that really cuts through, and and similarly with with your work. So um, great, and, and congratulations on on the on the recent one, especially, but also you know the, yeah. the fact that you've been able to apply that is is brilliant and to compete at such a high level. So I definitely want to get into that. What are the most pervasive myths and misconceptions then can we i mean it's horrifying really and it's definitely taken me by surprise just how that shouldn't be surprised how nasty people can be but certainly how judgmental that is and 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 how terrifying that must be for anyone especially those though that didn't know that that was nonsense right that that people would just err on the side of caution wouldn't they they would just think well even if there's a one percent chance i would just i will just not and 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 so can we get stuck into that almost straight away then? Like, what do you feel are the are the biggest myths and misconceptions? And, and where do they come from? How can we overcome them? What's there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because Grant's kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing is that you're getting so annoyed by the lack of literature in this area. That she's, <laughs> that's kind of what happened to me. That's like right. I started doing some of this research. I call it my side hustle research project because it's not an area of my PhD, but it's just so necessary. And I think that's where a lot of these myth, myths and misconceptions come from. So that's like the first off is that we tend to err on the side of being conservative across all medical fields or areas or recommendations until we have literature to prove otherwise. And we need to make a case or a justification for why we are pushing the boundary because there's no ethics board that would want to be responsible for an increase in miscarriage rate, for example. And so some of the myths and misconceptions that I think we've done a good job of demystifying in the last couple of years is around exercise at high intensity being related to miscarriage. It's now a relative contraindications for individuals who have had recurrent miscarriages in the first trimester to kind of bring down the intensity of their exercise potentially. Um, But before some people would say, if you've never exercised, don't exercise in the first trimester, it could cause a miscarriage. And, And we don't have any evidence to support that. Right. As we start going further into pregnancy, some of the things that I've heard is you shouldn't lift more than 20 pounds during your pregnancy. Any mom of or who's pregnant again will be lifting up their toddler. So they're automatically going to be that recommendation. But um, we have heard do not lift on your back. So no supine exercise. Um, do not lift weights over your head in the second trimester. Don't let your heart rate go over 140. Um, Those are probably some of the big ones that are uh, slowly starting to be debunked. Um, And so that's kind of the medical stuff. We, We talk about it in regards to fetal outcomes or any fetal adverse outcomes. The other side of the coin that I think we have to do a little bit of a better job, but also it's more in a communication standpoint is the PT education piece, because we tend to talk, especially as pelvic PTs around protecting the pelvic floor that's under strain. Like you don't want to prolapse. You don't want to cause incontinence. You don't want to cause pelvic girdle pain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But sometimes the language can be very absolute and it can be, um, overstating claims that we don't have any evidence to support, which is where my research project came in with Margie Davenport and Melise DeVivo and Lori Forner. So we can talk a little bit about that. Um, 
But if we want to kind of debunk each of these, so from the medical side of things, the heart rate over 140 was a recommendation around trying to keep your heart rate in the moderate range. So if you think most women who are like late twenties, early thirties, you take 220 minus your age, you're at 190, you take moderate to that 75 to 80, you get a rough 140. The way that translated in a bad taste or a bad case of telephone was this absolute do not go over 140. And what, so what I, I think happened, this is kind of my theory is that you took that moderate range as kind of like this guidepost, like roughly keep your average here. Like you'll be able to pass the talk test. You're not going into those high intensities um, and you should be okay. The latest guideline for the Canadian CSEP um, getting active during pregnancy guideline actually removed that because we don't have evidence to support it. Um, We're starting to see more female athletes. Like there was some uh, fetal changes on an elite athlete doing a treadmill test where they were staying at a sustained over 90% of your one rep max, or sorry, one rep max, your aerobic max that led to some of these recommendations. Um, But we're starting to see more research and more female athletes who are going into those high intensity zones. And on our research study, we saw that there was out of over 700 recreationally active women who continue to lift during their pregnancies, they were going into high intensity zones, usually twice a week. So they were kind of doing that, that CrossFit stuff. The only thing that I will say about the high intensity piece that sometimes I'll talk to my female athletes about who are pregnant is the rebound fatigue. Like if you go as hard as you can, which there's nothing bad is like, your body will slow you down the next day usually. And so they'll, they'll feel that fatigue. Like, you know, that, that you did a really good workout and you feel like you want to be on the couch the next day times up by three when you're pregnant and that's probably how you'll feel. So if you're, if you don't have anything to do the next day, I say, you know, go for it. But that rebound fatigue is usually what I'm talking to my athletes being like, you know, you're, you might feel this a lot more than when you weren't pregnant. So is there any of these, are there any of the, um, if we had to give the devil his due, are there any that have some underlying reasons for caution or have they kind of all escalated from Chinese whispers and other miscommunications like you're describing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when the supine exercise is an interesting one that we can kind of talk about. So when we're thinking about exercise and pregnancy, I'm talking about females who have an uncomplicated pregnancy, right? So we have our absolute relative and contraindications to exercise or absolute and relative contraindications to exercise during pregnancy. And if there is like cervical insufficiency, if you're um, having issues with, you know, that have had preterm birth, all these things that kind of come into that relative space, then you're obviously going to need to be more closely monitored by pelvic PT or more closely monitored by your OB. Um, OB first off to make sure you're doing safety wise, and then pelvic can help with with exercise considerations to keep you within the recommendations that your medical team has allowed. Um, But for example, so clinical hypotensive syndrome is when you have a compression on the inferior vena cava with uh, lying on your back. Women are told after 18 to 20 weeks of gestation to lie on their side. And then they really freak out when they wake up and they're in the back, they're afraid they're going <laughs> to kill their baby or something, which usually our body is waking us up because we're starting to feel some of those blood flow changes and you just have to kind of roll over onto your side. But, um, but they, that also then translated into do not do any exercise on your back. And so there was a systematic review that was uh, published a couple of years ago that, um, that said, you know, we don't really have any evidence to have short bouts of exercise under 30 seconds on our back, causing any sort of 
uh, abnormalities in fetal blood flow. However, this one is individuals who are experiencing clinical hypotensive syndrome. I have some athletes who can lie on their back and sleep there for eight hours when they're, you know, uh, nine months pregnant. And I have some athletes who within 15 seconds start to feel dizzy, nauseous, unwell, and, you know, those are those flags, right? So we, we give our, our clients those guideposts. So as soon as an athlete says that to me, I'm like, okay, we're just going to, instead of bench pressing supine, we're going to put you onto an incline and allow you to continue lifting that way. Or if you're doing glute bridges, we're going to prop your upper back onto a bench and you're going to continue doing them that way. It actually makes it harder for both of those exercises. So um, I'm good with making those modifications. So absolutely. There are certain recommendations that instead of saying an absolute no, it should be if this, then that. So yeah, guideposts instead of like, we, we hate the, it depends, but we can say it depends, but here's what you're looking out for. Like go until you feel this or, or those types of things. I think that's the thing. The, the, it depends. Doesn't fit on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or, or be a trendy slogan, but it, it's something that, we need to bear in mind and why I asked that question is because we don't want to make the mistake whilst debunking and demything. We we don't want to then throw the baby out with the bathwater and maybe make some fairly cavalier mistakes. And the classic one being to not offer that caveat of explaining this is an uncomplicated pregnancy with the, with these parameters. Uh, because if you if you paint with too broad a brush, then you might be making some mistakes and and, and it's as bad as what you were what you were trying to correct for so that's 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 great one of the things that i remember from my, my wife's pregnancy certainly not an uncomplicated one by the way she had we had monodi twins so uh so it's slightly different and so she had yeah. to modify her everything but uh, certainly exercise behaviors but one of the things i think about when it comes to weightlifting with pregnancy is that one of the key rules that that as far as we're aware isn't a myth necessarily or certainly wasn't in our case because they went on about it is don't bump the bump so particularly was was that you, you need to you need to make sure to to and and, and so it doesn't mean she was uh, having to stop playing rugby or, uh, or or equivalent, but certainly something I could think about is that when someone is very comfortable in a CrossFit box and therefore might be might be knocking themselves with with dumbbells and barbells etc., then I could imagine that being something to to bear in mind. Now, is that a safety related thing where of course they wouldn't purposely do so, but the environment might be conducive to bits and knocks and stuff like that, that they do need to consider. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So in, for individuals who aren't familiar, who are listening in the CrossFit methodology, they have a strong, um, not always strong bias, but they incorporate Olympic weightlifting into their methodology. So that means the clean and jerk and the snatch the clean, you make contact, the barbell makes contact with your leg in the middle of the thigh, comes up to your shoulder, then you pop it overhead. With the snatch, the bar comes up, makes contact in the pelvis, and then comes overhead, you go down into an overhead squat. So fairly early in your pregnancy, the fetus is so far back in the pelvis that most females don't feel that uncomfortable continuing to snatch. As we get further along in your pregnancy, that's when the question comes in. In terms of the velocity, if you are proficient in weightlifting, some people think you just, just mash the bar into your pelvis. That's not actually the case. You really should just be kind of making that brief contact that allows the bar to continue being nice and close to your body. 
and then getting underneath it. So you should not be um, doing anything that would be over G rated when you're thinking about making contact in the pelvis with the snatch. The, the thing for me that I always talk to my female athletes about is performance. This, I don't actually think that the weight, like I've seen female athletes, I've supported female athletes who have continued to snatch light weights up until almost delivery. What ends up happening is they do this big swing around their baby bump because, and then they don't actually end up hitting it. Um, you can also do no contact variations. So uh, no contact variation for a snatch is when you actually do not make contact at all and you bring the bar nice and close. It's a drill that's done in weightlifting to work on keeping the bar nice and close and not letting the bar float away from you. So that's a way for female athletes who want to continue lifting until a little bit further into their pregnancies to maintain their proficiency to continue to do that. Um, but the biggest thing is that as you start getting into the third trimester and fetal growth becomes the predominant factor, you're going to see that your baby bump is going to grow a lot faster. And what's going to happen is you're going to start having to loop the bar around. That is a very annoying performance cue that it's very sometimes hard to break. And so what will happen is you just, when you're coming back postpartum, you're not hitting the bar. Like the bar isn't landing in the spot that you want it to. So I usually go and talk, especially with my, my really high level female athletes who want to hold on to this as much as possible. If you tackle this from a performance perspective, um, rather than a fear perspective that you're going to, you know, cause some sort of injury, um, it tends to hit a little bit better. And, and we don't have any, like if you're doing it, if you have a certain level of proficiency with a snatch, you aren't actually hitting that aggressively. Yeah, because that's and that's where it's sometimes hard, isn't it? Where you need to understand the proficiency, and also for them to be really in touch with. You know, there's a certain flavour of intermediate lifter that would be offended by the question about proficiency. But what we're getting at is just how much is that a glance compared to an impact really matters with regards to whether or not it's smart to. But then also, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Is that you want to have that conversation about? do you want to get into an adjusted habit here? Or might this be something that you decide to work around, maintain mobility, maintain even, even overhead strength in a different way, but possibly then just have a bit of a, a training break from those particular moment movements um, is a really interesting one and, and, and certainly a, a good one. I want to talk about, let's, let's stick with the snatch. You then catch it overhead in a deep squat. Often. Yep. Um, certainly at, at max loads. That's and that that moves us into another area of concern, which is on the sort of the, the PT pelvic health risk of prolapse, risk of incontinence, that sort of stuff. Do we we know that that is unless this is where you might myth bust me, but as far as I'm aware, that's that there's this you know, higher force on the pelvic floor um, in those in those movements in the depth of that movement. Is do we do we know both during and after pregnancy as to whether they are. As, as, as they should be considered as, as at risk as they have been and, 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 and what are the general advice or clues in that area that can help us to navigate that sensibly? Yeah. So this is probably the one that's the most controversial when it comes to lifting and pregnancy and postpartum and, and prolapse. And so bear with me if I go off a little bit of a tangent on a soapbox, this is kind of like my, oh, my hill that I die on, so to speak. When we're talking, so if anybody is listening and they're not a pelvic PT, so pelvic organ prolapse is a descent of one or more of the pelvic organs towards the vaginal opening. If one of your clients goes onto Google and Googles this, 
they will feel like their organs are going to fall out of their body. And it's a very uncomfortable space. It can sensitize the pelvis. Um, and that's not actually the case. So if we think about the vaginal canal, what we are seeing is that there's pressure from the pelvic organs because of a shifting that happens that creates like, instead of the vaginal canal being a tube, there's kind of pressures that come in that change its shape. There is different stages of prolapse from uh, stage one to stage four. Stage four is when the wall of the vaginal canal is actually outside of the body, which is the, the scary things that you're going to see on Dr. Google. What the thought is, is that one of the things that can look, sorry, some of the symptoms that people will feel. So there's a dichotomy between what women will or females will experience subjectively versus objectively. Objectively, we see a descent where we can see the movement of the, that pelvic organ, especially when we're bearing down and subjectively what females will complain of is a feeling of heaviness, pelvis. It may or may not be linked to leaking or incontinence. And they'll feel, sometimes they will feel like this bulging in their vaginal opening that feels like they're going over a tennis ball. And there's different types of prolapse you can have. And they're, they've kind of moved away from talking about it as a cystocele, rectocele to anterior, posterior and apical types of prolapse. So is it coming from the front pressure? Is the pressure coming from the back or is the pressure coming from the top? What we're starting to see is that there is a very blurry line between what is objectively felt or objectively seen rather, and what is subjectively felt. So it's kind of going along the line of a disc herniation. So what we know is that with disc herniations, you can have a disc herniation on MRI and have absolutely no back pain. This is the same with pelvic organ prolapse. So you can see a descent and women will not subjectively have any complaints of prolapse, or you will have an individual who is very sensitized to those feelings subjectively of prolapse, grade one, grade two, and will have a lot of bother with it versus someone with a grade three might not actually feel that. So there's a lot of disconnect that makes this conversation very blurry. So that's one thing that makes this really blurry. The second thing is how we assess a prolapse. And this is, this is kind of where it gets a little bit complicated and I'm going to try not to, to, to make it too complicated, but when we're assessing a prolapse, we have a, a woman in supine and we, we take a look um, for any pelvic PTs, you, you look through the vaginal opening and then you get them to do a Valsalva and they say Valsalva equals bearing down, right? right. So you're going to Valsalva, you're going to bear down as if you're trying to birth a baby and you want to see how much movement there is in some of those pelvic organs. The word Valsalva is also used as a bracing strategy in strength and conditioning. And this is where I think the change has to come because when you are appropriately bracing again, so in male strength and conditioning, sometimes they'll say bear down, like get your breath in and bear down to tighten up your, your stabilization in your core when you're lifting heavy loads. But for female athletes, I advocate for not doing that. And so there's this disconnect where Valsalva means different things. For a prolapse assessment, it's, it's pushing out a baby. And, and I make the argument that you shouldn't be bearing. The only time you should be bearing down is when you're having a baby, you shouldn't be bearing down to poop. You shouldn't be bearing down to lift. You should only be bearing down when you're trying to exit a kid out of the vaginal canal. Gotcha. And 
Yeah. But in strength and conditioning, oftentimes, um, the, the way that Valsalva is taught is this bear down. And, and sometimes that can be linked to the fact that a lot of our really uh, well-known strength and conditioning coaches who have mastered this or, or were the, the initial people who were advocating for this were men who don't tend to have pelvic floor dysfunctions. And so we can talk about the literature on, on incontinence and prolapse and, and female lifters, but basically Valsalva now, if I am teaching a female athlete to do a Valsalva, I'm getting them to inhale and draw in, not down. And so when you're drawing in, you're getting all those abdominal muscles, those spinal stabilizers to work in concert with each other. And when you're doing a Valsalva, some of the EMG activation shows a, a very even line of activation across the obliques, the rectus, the pelvic floor, and versus this bearing down, which is going to put a lot of, of strain down on the pelvic floor, thinking of like this ballooning pressure that happens, which can promote some of that descent. So that's kind of number one when we're thinking about prolapse. This is going to be really long. Sorry, I'm going to try and make it as, as quick as possible. So, okay. okay. So that- no, no, it's important to get this detail through. So it's, it's fascinating. So carry on. Okay. So prolapse assessment how we're thinking about it, how this can be really complicated when we think about. So now a pelvic PT who doesn't understand the nuance of Valsalva says, oh, well, I do a Valsalva when I lift really heavy. And they're like, well, that's how we're, we're tr- like, it causes all this movement. So we should just avoid it. So that's kind of where yeah. we're, we're trying to reframe and, and make this distinguishing, this distinguished um, kind of differentiate between what those, those two things are. And then the next thing that happens is, is heavy lifting going to promote a prolapse? And that's, especially if we're lifting during pregnancy and during postpartum. And that was one of the things that we were investigating in our research study is to start getting some research on that because we really don't have any evidence. Um, Right now, the way that the literature stands was one of the risk factors that was identified for prolapse, almost all of them. And absolutely the biggest risk factors are going to be obstetrical. So they're going to be uh, parity. So the number of kids you've had via vaginal delivery, um, if you've had to have an instrumented, so use of forceps or vacuum delivery, uh, higher degrees of perennial tearing, et cetera, are the higher risk factors for developing a prolapse. The other factor that has come up has been around occupational heavy lifting. And this is where, um, some of the recommendations around resistance training have come up. So one of the risk factors that came up for prolapse was individuals who are involved in occupations that require heavy lifting and returning to them early postpartum. So things that require lifting like in factories or, or nurses who are doing a lot of transfers and coming back to that really quick, um, there's an increased risk of having a prolapse. And so again, that got linked. We don't have any literature on resistance training, So if occupational heavy lifting is a risk factor, then heavy lifting in general might be considered a risk factor as well. So we should be careful around heavy lifting. Um, So that was one one avenue or line around where these recommendations came from. And then the second one is around the fact that the pelvic floor is under a lot of strain already um, during pregnancy, should we be adding to it? But right now we don't have any research to say either way around is resistance training promoting potential prolapse? Is it a weight? Is it protective potentially because you're strengthening the whole system? And if you can strengthen the whole system, that includes the pelvic floor. And if the pelvic floor is stronger, you're less likely to have some of these changes. We, we really just don't know. And, and so there's a lot of 
of reframing that I think needs to happen in the world of prolapse. Um, I am of the thought that if you have had one and definitely if you've had two babies, you are going to have some degree of prolapse. And so we should almost, and then if it gets worse, then obviously we intervene, but having some changes that happen down there after having babies, I think it is normal. And we need to, we need to talk about some of the normal changes that we can expect, right? Our enteritis is going to, uh, get wider. We're going to have a little bit more mobility down there. So when we're lifting or moving, we're going to feel a bit more movement, especially early postpartum. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but sometimes the way that we communicate can almost create like a sensitization around the pelvis that can sometimes maybe promote some of the subjective symptoms of prolapse. And so I fight myself back and forth around whether to disclose low stages of prolapse or not, or how to talk about it or like it's, it's a very, very hard topic. Um, but I think, you know, pelvic PT sometimes has been focused in, in too much fear, fear language. And we need to, to think and really reflect on how we can empower people to be, to be working through some of these things, because we would never say, oh, you can never participate in soccer again, if you have knee pain. And so why Uh, all of a sudden, if you're, you're leaking with double unders, are we saying, well, why are you doing double unders? That's just silly. Why jump rope? You know? So Yeah. But that's why it's such a, that's an interesting fine line. So I just want to explore a couple of bits of that. One is that what do we understand about the range of, of the female anatomy changes that occur in post having a, a child or children? Because I think that I'll be honest, listening to you, I'm thinking, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much, is is inevitable in a sense and and how much bounce back in that in that regard i mean bounce back is a cultural term isn't it often for female aesthetic bodies to bounce back you know often it's it's the sort of covers of of magazines type thing but obviously what i'm meaning for in this is that how do how well do viscoelastic tissues respond from the post-delivery in in an anatomical and and biomechanical sense Um, i'm not i'm not sure because i I think that that's also relevant for where I will admit that this sometimes crude cultural misogynistic stereotypes about uh, women's pelvises that post post children that they want to I- imply massive difference that is obviously from a different place, right? And so we need to make sure that then we're encountering of that obvious nonsense that you don't then get carried away and implying that there would be absolutely no relevant difference there. So it's like a, a funny line that we need to tread because as healthcare professionals, like we need to get shut of those, those, that noise, which is often just chatter and think, right, how can we best help people? And, and the way to help people would be to not indulge in myths of either direction. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated to get your reflections on, on that. Yeah. And so we are obviously going to see some differences that the lengthening or widening of the introitus is going to be permanent. There's going to be like, there's going to be some comeback, but there's a like a 300% stretch injury to the pelvic floor after vaginal delivery, which is right. incredibly, um, I don't like using the word traumatic, but it is a trauma to the body from Tissue a biological trauma. sense. Yeah. And then yeah. plus or minus if there's that psychological trauma sure. um, that the body has to heal from. And, you know, we, some of that strength might, might change in the way the orientation of the fibers and 
the amount of support around the pelvis might change. We know that there's going to be a little bit more mobility anterior to posterior, a post baby with normal activities. And again, um, you know, that, that probably is not going to come back. Um, we, we see a little bit of a widening of the pelvis that does come back, but uh, not a hundred percent. And about 80% or 80% plus of women post-vaginal delivery will have a stage one or stage two prolapse. So that's what I'm saying. Like if 80% of females have a prolapse after vaginal delivery, to me, that's normal. Like if the vast majority, if that's a, a normal change that happens when you're birthing humans, think about how we can reframe that. Instead of calling it a chronic disease, say it's like our wrinkles on the inside as we get older and go through this, this huge change in our life. Um, and so if we can really start to reframe it, I think that makes a massive difference because it's not, I, I get women talk to me all the time being like, I'm so afraid of a prolapse. What can I do? Mm-hmm. What can I do? And I, and I say, I have a prolapse. I've had two kids. I know I have a prolapse. Sure. I had a prolapse with my first child. I'm asymptomatic. I had a prolapse with my second child and I'm asymptomatic. So I know that my body has had those changes, but for me, I've reframed it and saying, well, it's just a sign that my body has gone through two pregnancies. That's not a bad thing. And how can we communicate that without it becoming inherently nocebic because we're giving it in its context and also pointing towards performance despite changes, which we've become more mature in doing with regards to say age related or, or the degenerative understanding of changes in, in, in joints and and the like so no it's a fascinating thing and i hadn't thought of it that way another thing am i right in thinking your hypothesis is that if we that there is potentially some risk that would come from someone cueing themselves with abdominal pressure differently and that therefore to appropriately tease out the right from wrong with regards to those forces Am I right in thinking that you, you, you which I imagine you're investigating, um, so th- there might be some spoilers that, that I might be baiting out with you, but am I right in thinking that that's what your theory theorizing is that if we did it, if we did it right, then we're going to be light in the risk. If, but, it, but technically it could well be that miscuing that could actually be, be, be bearing force down in those positions, leaving people vulnerable. Yeah, so I have a couple of theories around uh, bracing during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, One of them is, you're right, we need, before we eliminate any bracing strategy, let's dig deeper a little bit. Let's see how you're bracing, when you're bracing. The other element is when we're using a weightlifting belt during, uh, not usually during pregnancy, but postpartum or before pregnancy, and that's contribution to potential pelvic pressures. So let's look at how you're bracing right? Like one, are you drawing in or are you bearing down? Can we change the line of force? Can we change how you're conceptualizing bracing? And will that eliminate symptoms or feelings of heaviness? Great. That's number one. Number two, when we add a weightlifting belt, are we changing our bracing strategy? Because what tends to happen with a weightlifting belt is that people inhale and they push out against the belt, which is like pushing in the middle of a balloon. And all that pressure is coming down into the pelvic floor, which can contribute to some of that feeling of heaviness your bracing strategy shouldn't be changing. It should be, um, you should be adding that spinal stabilization. That's giving you that little bit of a boost, but you don't want to be changing your bracing strategy when you're now going to like 90% of your one at max. Like that's not the, that's not the idea. Um, so we can look at that and then we can have changes in bracing strategy that can help. So the 
breath and the pelvic floor work very closely together. So we can work on exhaling with exertion under load to reflexively get the pelvic floor to contract. Um, we can work on free breathing. We can try increasing a bracing while breathing, decreasing bracing, but holding your breath. Like that's how we start getting female athletes who are used to lifting weights and want to lift weights again to explore where their, their lines are, where they start feeling pelvic symptoms. And if we reconceptualize again, the way that a leak is like when we're experiencing pain from a tendinopathy, we have this amount of leaking or, or pelvic complaint that we can accept as pushing our, our fitness forward. But once we hit whatever X variable is, then that's your signal that you're pushing your body a little bit too far. We need to bring it back again. Just like, you know, my shoulder is sore with doing pull-ups. Okay. Well, if it's a two out of 10, you can keep going. As soon as it bumps to a four or five, we're kind of done for today. You're, you're pushing it a bit too far. Or when you're getting off the bar and it's not alleviating, you know, like these types of things that we talk about all the time in orthopedics, we can use those same constructs and, and put them into the pelvic space for fitness. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think it's, it's as well challenging because when you're asking what is it you're doing to cue yourself or what, what is it you're doing to brace, you need your patient to be able to articulate that, which is, which is often difficult. And the, in the, the variation of body awareness as well, that I find challenging. Do you have any tips and tricks in that direction? I have a bar in my clinic and put them up to 80% of their one rep max so I can see it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it, I get them to show me because you're right. Like sometimes I'll be like, well, I don't think I do that. Um, or I get them to video themselves at the gym. And I say like, I want you to show me some of these videos. Um, so I do a lot of, yeah, that type of stuff. Because yeah, And so you're, obs- you're observing, that's the thing is that you're observing it and you feel like you've, you've got, there's enough objective tells there that you'd be able to get insight from uh, rather than always having to ask them to articulate what it is that they're doing. No, that's, that's, that's helpful. And your bracing strategy changes under load, like necessarily yeah. you have to, as soon as yeah. like the thing Valsalva has been demonized as something that's inherently bad, but you will naturally start to Valsalva over 80% of your one rep max because it stabilizes your spine and it protects it. Like that's the idea. Um, so your, your female client, if you're telling them to avoid Valsalva and then they go to move their house and they're moving a couch with their husband then that's going to be their Valsalva, you know, like, or when they're picking up their car seat with their child, who's 12 pounds and the car seat, that's another 12 pounds. And now they're in an awkward position, deadlifting 25 pounds and they're, they're doing a Valsalva then. So if we can strengthen the whole system, then the relative effort of their day is lower. In geriatrics, I talk about how we, we start one rep max living Dustin Jones and I teach that course together. And what that means is that the demands of our day are at or exceeding the body's capacity. And if we are avoiding any lifting with the pelvic floor can do the same thing. And is the, the subjective complaint because their day-to-day efforts are at or exceeding their one rep max. And if we actually strengthen the whole system, instead of getting really specific, is that going to make a difference in a positive direction? And it might, it's something to think about or, or reflect on around you know are we deconditioning the system by telling them to avoid all these things yeah and, and interesting yeah you said about the parallel the two populations that get famously underloaded and it's uh, the the part of the cult of kindness to then imply that you're thinking that you're trying to do something nice for someone where you oh well, it's not challenge you too much it's like well 
these are areas where it's unwise for us to allow for you know sarcopenia and the like to to set in because that's very difficult to reverse once that's occurred um and especially when it comes to some more more niche musculature as we're talking about then that's super important so yeah fascinating and, and thank you so much for that one of the things i remember again from from my wife's experience as well as what i still i still read plenty about from from general um understanding is that you don't want to necessarily ramp up your exercise. Um, you want to be when you when you t- when you become pregnant. Like it, it's about trying to you know, maintain what you have, and therefore uh, that that's wise. When someone is um, highly competitive, it sounds like you you know, you, you yourself will be in that 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 uh, category really lifting lifting very heavy. Um, how much does it need to taper, um, and and what variables are, are, are key to understanding that? Yeah. So this might be a good area for me to introduce our study. So what we did, so Marge Davenport, Marlies DeVivo, Lori Forner, and myself, we started, we did a cross-sectional study that looked at individuals who are resistance training during their pregnancy and are now postpartum. And we started looking at doing some descriptive statistics about what they did, because right now we don't have anything that's over like 20 pounds, 25 pounds in the literature in, in terms of resistance training during pregnancy. It's now in the guidelines saying that it's safe at moderate load, but my 20, moderate so, load, so 20, 20 pounds is, is, is not quite your PR then. No, uh, but, you know, is no. That fair to say? So like, I'm working with people who are deadlifting 300 pounds. So <laughs> like, you know, like, so, sure. so we, we started going into literature and the one thing that I love, so we had over 700 women who responded over 85% of them are recreational lifters because we're starting to get more data in the elite level um, competitor because the idea is that elite level competitors aren't, it's their job. They're not going to stop their job during their pregnancy. So we're going to study them, but now we need to start thinking about how about the recreational athlete. So of these women before their pregnancies, they were lifting their squat was in the 160 to 175 range on average, their deadlift was pushing 200 of these 700 recreationally active women. So we're starting to get females who are pushing the paradigm recreationally, which is really great. Um, So with that, we started saying, okay, when did you stop weightlifting? When, or did you weightlift? Yes or no? If yes, when did you modify? When you were doing your loading, what were you doing? When were you valsalving? When did you remove your weightlifting belt? And so it's been fascinating to look at this because now we're starting to get some descriptive statistics around general characterizations around um, uncomplicated pregnancies. And then we related that to their birth outcomes. And so some of the things that we're starting to see is that in terms of loading um, in the beginning of pregnancy, there's generally no changes to loading schemas um, that happen, especially the first trimester. And then as they get towards the end, it generally decreases to close to 60%. So we, and I think it happens in a very stepwise progression where, you know, you're not feeling as strong in your abdominal bracing because of that stretching of the anterior core wall. Um, You're starting to to change your bracing strategy away from Valsalva towards a breathing on exertion, which if you're not used to training that, it makes it feel heavier. Your weight is shifting. Your gravity is, um, your center of balance is a little bit off. So, so women tend to taper their weight down and they will finish around 60% on average. Some people are going to be higher than that. Some people are going to be less than that, depending on, you know, what pops up in their pregnancy. Um, but we have that as a pretty good guideline, but 60% of 300 pounds. So they, you still see, right. These videos of 
females who are lifting 220, 225. Um, I was still able to, to deadlift 175, 185 towards, you know, 36, 37 weeks pregnant with my son. So, and feel strong, like you're moving with that. So. Right, brilliant. Well, that's that's really promising and also reassuring news. And and as ever, it's about adjusting it and tailoring it to the individual. You've got to understand that. You've got to understand what they're asking of their body, what their expectations are, what their goals are. Be that both performance as well as then for what their perceptions are as to how protective doing or not doing certain things might be. Um, and so again, that that conversation needs to be had in the environment that they feel safe to be able to share it. And and for us to then be able to be across these, as I say, I'm making so much of it, so many notes as we go, because it's like, you've got to learn the detail uh, because if you get carried too far away from something and you miss the kernel of truth within it, then that's going to be a mistake. But similarly, a lot of what you're describing there are primary concerns of, of, of women in this situation. And if they don't have a trusted advisor, which they can then lean on to, to, to talk that through with, they're likely to just err on the side of caution and potentially compromise not just their health in the near term, but also their future performance and future health and fitness that where they, they might struggle to, to return, um, which was needless in the end. You know, that's the thing. It's not things that people want to perceive as being inevitable might have been avoidable. Um, a question I want to ask about that specificity then is, is that I've been doing a lot of work recently trying to help people in the therapy game, in MSK, MSK disciplines, to understand the relevant differences between the weightlifting discipline right so like what why it is useful for you to have some insight you don't need to know everything but what a strongman style training asks of the body is relevantly different to crossfit and then there might be some subtle and some overt differences between that and say olympic lifting and then major differences between that and powerlifting and so understanding those those differences can really help you to gain insight into what they're asking of their bodies when it comes to things like crossfit olympic lifting any of any of the other that i've mentioned there what what do you feel the specific any specific considerations that we need to be bringing to bear when it comes to this demographic so like kind of general rules of thumb when it comes to yeah yeah i mean we can't individualize it for everyone right now but i just mean like yeah in terms of sort of classic classic either mistakes or or even plus upside stories that you can give us for those disciplines yeah. So in general, not even in the pelvic space, I think we, we need to be very good coaches as PTs. And that doesn't mean that we have to have a, a high level of proficiency in every sport, but we need to be exercise and movement specialists. Um, I think that's super important. And, and in the gym is kind of where our wheel, where we, we self-declare as our wheelhouse which means that we need to, to be able to coach through these movements, the squat, the deadlift, the press, the push, the pull in both horizontal and vertical planes, I think is super important. Um, and also understand movement variability, right? And if you have an individual without pathology, there's anthropometric differences that are going to create a, a level of variability. Then you layer in pregnancy on top of that. And we need to have an understanding of the hormonal and biomechanical changes that are happening in a female's body and be able to coach through that. So before you're getting rid of a movement, like an overhead press, we, we should be able to teach, you know, stacking the ribcage over the pelvis, like doing a little bit of a brace through the core. You're, you can brace your abdominals. You can do core training during pregnancy. It's going to look different. Um, I, I would not be recommending sit-ups more because it's very hard to get up over a very pregnant belly to sit up. 
Um, but you know, you can do some of these coach coach movements first, and then we can start getting rid of it. So one of the, the general rules of thumb is don't get rid of movements for the sake of getting rid of movements. Yeah. You know, look at movement quality, look at, you know, how your athlete is feeling and, and try and coach first and then, and then move forward. Um, the, the second thing around this, these movements is that uh, bracing isn't bad. Bracing is actually encouraged. Um, breathing can change potentially, but you want to still get female athletes racing through their core, doing core work, um, during their pregnancy, everyone worries about diastasis recti around if there's any coning through the linea alba, um, diastasis recti happens in hundred percent of pregnancies because our body's incredibly, uh, incredibly amazing way of allowing the, the female body to change, to allow the baby to grow. So that's not a bad thing, but instantly people like get rid of hanging from a bar, get rid of doing any gymnastics. And then when these female CrossFit athletes are trying to come back postpartum, their grip strength isn't there. They're already dealing with weakness from the the stretching of the lower abdominal wall. And it's, it's just so hard to come back to. Um, but if you get females doing some core work, peel off presses, side bends, um, side planks, you know, these types of things within their tolerance, you can, you can probably do, um, a lot of good. So, yeah, I guess my thing is coach first, don't kick out movements for the sake of kicking out movements, make sure you're justifying why you're doing it. And, um, there's a lot of variables that we can manipulate load placement of load, breath, stance, range of motion, um, that allows female athletes to be able to continue participating in their sport and run the CrossFit side of things a lot of um, female athletes, it's the community of CrossFit. So giving them those guideposts saying, you know, when this comes up on the board, do this, when this comes up on the board, do that. So they feel like the one, they're not being a bother, but two, they get to be part of the community that they, they love. Um, you know, people can harp on CrossFit a lot, but one thing they've done really well is community. Absolutely. So yeah. And it's one of the things I think people enjoy it, because because community done badly and done too intensely becomes culty. People mm-hmm. then take those examples of where it's done badly and they've got carried away on a theme and then try to tarnish all, which is unfair because that community aspect is participation in fitness is, is definitely centering it around and people don't want to let their team I'd rather my clients be in a fitness cult. We don't have, <laughs> we don't have a movement problem in our world right now. We have a lack of movement problems. So discouraging the people who have fallen in love with movement in some sure. way. It's just not something that I can get on board with. Absolutely, you know, as 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 cult habits go, fitness ones, yeah, we'll 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 let that slide more than others. No, I think that that's that's absolutely true. I think um, I think as well the the ability for us to try and get get therapists and any culture trainer to the minute that you're about to say for now avoid whatever that next sentence is, right? The more subtle that is, the more targeted that is, the more individualized that is. If you if you feel you really do need them to avoid or or decrease or do less of, but it's when that next sentence is something profound, like the thing you love doing, or this whole movement series, or it's like don't be clumsy with that. And that's what I've learned so much about where you know it's it's something that despite being a real high priority for me to not do, I think there could well be that my own specific ignorance in some of these topics means that I've been I've been more broad than I needed to be on that and that again more thoughtful more targeted more individualized 
he's going to be for the win. So I massively appreciate your time today. I've, I've learned so much. I'm sure the listeners will too. Um, could you just signpost people to where they can find out more about you and uh, where we can learn more from you? Yeah. So my Instagram is at Christina underscore Previt. Um, the courses that I teach are through the Institute of Clinical Excellence. So if you're interested in learning more about this, we have an eight week online course and a live course that's in America. Uh, we haven't gotten out to, to Europe yet, but never say never. Watch this um, space. Pardon? Yeah, watch this space. You'll be over here soon. Yeah. No doubt. So. We'll get That'd you over. Um, but that's ptnice.com is where you can find some of our courses and uh, at ice physio is where we post a lot. We have a podcast as well that we talk about a lot of this stuff. So. Super. No, that's brilliant. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, one of you, I'll just I'll take, you know, always every opportunity if I can to uh, promote the work of one of your co-authors, Molly's and, and what her and Sally are doing at the Active Pregnancy Foundation is fantastic. And the resources that they're coming up with are brilliant as well. So if you haven't checked those out, then please do go out and check Active Pregnancy Foundation out, as well as all those brilliant resources that, that Christina's involved in. I uh, really appreciate it. I hope this isn't the last time we speak because I've, I've got so many questions I've, I've gone unanswered, uh, but I will definitely be following your work ever more closely. Thanks so much again, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. Cheers. Lovely stuff. Really enjoyed that. Absolutely loads of information there for me to take away into my practice. Um, and um, giving uh, really evidence-based and robust advice, really, to um, ladies who are pregnant. I thought it was super um, easy to implement information from Christina. Really enjoyed it. Um, and um, yeah, certainly, certainly lots of lots of other questions about specificity and the individual um, going around in my brain and hopefully we'll be able to get more content like that in 2022 as well where we talk about um, all of these things that affect musculoskeletal practice but aren't necessarily within the realms of obvious musculoskeletal um, conditions so very much enjoyed that please do find christina on social media and give her a follow you can obviously follow us on twitter instagram facebook just type in the physio matters podcast we come up pretty much everywhere um if you fancy following the old jack chew you can do that pretty much everywhere as well he comes up and just if you type in chew he usually comes up top of the list um some fairly bad um dad jokes from chew but also um good pictures of his twins which is worth a follow for you can of course follow me rheumatology physio if you fancy that um but otherwise we are counting down well first of all to christmas so hope you all have a great christmas because i don't think i'll be speaking to you again before that but um also next year we will have our 100th episode lots of news to come on that we're going to do something very special um, to mark that 100th episode and um, new ideas and plans are afoot um, for us to continue to evolve and make this podcast um, the gold standard that it is. So make sure you subscribe if you don't for some reason. Hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you prefer. You can also find this podcast on YouTube. It's a really decent way to watch. You can. We also have that in video. So this episode, if you watched on YouTube, you can see Jack and Christina's lovely faces as they talk through the podcast. Uh, but also if you do a um, hit a like or, or a review on the podcast channels as well, that helps us out an absolute ton. So please do that if you don't mind. And we will be back in the new year. More podcasts, more CPD, more projects, more ideas, more making noise, more loud mouths behind microphones. 
Um, so Jack, as usual, forgot to do the cheesy sign out. So it's left to me this month, which to be honest with you, if you're listening, I don't mind because I quite like doing it. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing physio matters because physio matters. Bye for now.